Welcome to the Media Mavens Podcast, brought to you by the Evergreen Network. The Media Mavens Podcast is where you'll hear the latest and greatest trends, topics, and tribulations with industry leaders. And here is your host of the Media Mavens Podcast. She is the original Media Maven, Sarah Miller. Hi, this is Sarah Miller with Access Entertainment and your host for Media Mavens Podcast. I'm here today with my co-host, Joe Pirates. What's going on, Joey? I am uh, joining you from a very windy Tucson, Arizona. I guess we're getting the tail end of some storm right now. So You know, all of our storms here on Earth grew up in the solar storms up in space and trickled their way down. It's kind of like we're Mercury in retrograde right now. When everything moves up there, it affects us down here. But I guess you know that. Um, not me. You're just like, kind of like, what the hell, Sarah? I'm yeah. so... It's just, I'm such a space nut, as you know. We, I'm so yes. excited because we have, I'm all about the whole intelligence and what's going on up there. We here on Media Mavens are doing a special exclusive series on revolutionizing space, tourism, and commerce. And so this is a really good day for us because we have an awesome badass guest. We have Dan Lopez sitting here with an awesome background screen on the Zoom. <laughs> so it looks like he's on Mars, which is our topic today. But Dan, you are the chief strategy officer, head of product for Arcasis, and you guys are literally changing the way the future of space tourism. So one, I want to welcome you to the show, and I'm so excited to chat with you today. Awesome. Yeah, I think you cut off a little bit, but uh, I can jump in. I Um, introduce you as a badass from space, and I'm super, super excited that you're here. But you know, it's funny because I can do some stupid jokes. Because your background screen has you sitting on Mars doing our podcast. So I can just say the gap was just by the time communications got up there. What's going on with you guys? You guys are building the future of space and you guys are doing so much over at Arcasis. I know we were chatted about so much. I kind of stopped us. So I want to get us on the podcast. What are you guys doing over there? And let's talk about the expansion and future build out in space and what's going on up there with you guys. Yeah, so Arcasis, our mission is to build the world's first space outpost that's fully robotic. So as history is unfolding before our eyes and there's new commercial efforts getting to and from the International Space Station that's really focused on human space flight and other types of things that come from our work as a global community with the International Space Station. But what we're trying to do is create a new form factor altogether about how to get from the Earth to very far places from the Earth in a stepwise function. And so we're building these modular spacecrafts, if you will, that can assemble in space, build essentially itself, and aggregate, much like Legos in space. And so we're building spacecraft with robotic arms that have other kind of functionalities that we can build new spacecraft once you're in space. So you're not now bound by the physics of Earth and trying to get large things off the Earth, we can build large things in orbit or even further beyond. Is that's what we're building? Do you guys have a lot of stuff? A lot of what do we call them? Space outposts going on up there right now? Or yeah, there's a, so there was a, a call by the U.S. government for more information and a selection process. So there's I think about a little over twenty companies that kind of competed for it. One was human space flight, one was kind of focused around a space plane. And then there's a dark horse. And we were approached to create a new paradigm shift altogether. 
let's get away from the ISS. And how do we build capabilities for not only the U.S., but a global community, a commercial enterprise, as well as helping military organizations think through how to use this type of stuff all the way to how people can build applications in their basement and access the, the, the technology. So we got commissioned um, a little while ago, and I guess the government liked what we were doing so much so that they continued on. So we're, we're now actually getting closer and closer to instantiating something in space that's going to be pretty special. And if we are successful, it'll be as special as the International Space Station or the Space Shuttle or something like that. So, you know, all these satellites and all these ports and all these mini things or huge things that are floating around up there, they're not driven by humans. I mean, you guys are strictly ran like satellites purely on robotics and AI, I assume, right? Yep, yep, yep. So we're building autonomous agents, essentially, um, just like how you would imagine the, the, the segue between Uber today, generating a ton of data and all kinds of different things that's helping their driverless car come to be. We are building smarts into our spacecraft that allow us to do what you're just describing, autonomy, flying to different locations and assembling spacecraft, especially when it's far away without human intervention. So you guys sent one up there and it's equipped with all the equipment, nuts, bolts, pieces and parts. And if something needs to be rebuilt up there, whether it's photographs, you know, putting another rover on Mars pretty soon, instead of putting, you know, humans at risk, because there's so much more they're working on getting flight transports and stuff. We know there's a future of people just want to go visit up there for tourism. You're able to build safer environments for data exchanges, analytics, versus putting people up there. Everything like here's a blueprint, like an architecture blueprint, and then through AI and communication, these machines up there are building all these pieces for you, right? Mm -hmm. So think about it this way too, Um, much like say Amazon Web Services or Google Compute Cloud or something. Before you, when you had a business idea, you had to go procure all your servers, you had to become an expert in how to deploy all the actual hardware and then networking and all those different things and then get to your actual business idea. Now, if you have a business idea, you can spin all that stuff up, try it out, vet your idea, and then operationalize your your billion-dollar business, whether it's Instagram or Facebook, whatever it is. You can create your idea without having to really focus on the infrastructure. So what we are providing is essentially the first wave of, hopefully not just the first wave, but the the next wave of technology that allows people to take their their idea, their business model, and apply it without having to be specialists in creating really expensive hardware. And that was kind of the deal in the 80s and 90s. And now we have commoditized it to a point where those are just services. We abstract out the actual hardware. And the innovation that has come on top of, of Amazon Web Services, where there's I think there's over a thousand different products that you can choose from now on Amazon. We can now look at an uh, analogous kind of implementation. What we're building is essentially going to allow people to build business applications without having to know all that stuff that you have to do to build a spacecraft. That's cool. So like all these ports and payloads and all these 
machines that are up there. I mean, what is the purpose of them? Are you collecting data? Because I know you guys are working with NASA, JPL. You're working, wait, there's NASA, we have JPL. Bezos has his rocket going up, I think, in May, if he can make it. We have mm-hmm. SpaceX and we have all these. Do they all work with you guys to use you to build things for photos, analytics, research, or is there hey, You know, that's a, that's a great question. I and mean, how I, I, I frame it out is, you look at the earth in a certain way, and we all have this. We, we're all built innately with something called the overview effect and appreciation for that. So when you see the earth, especially from space, you experience it in a, in a manner that gives you awe and uh, inspiration. But when we look back at the earth, all of those markets and all of those different business applications that look back, like telecommunications, broadband, television, the, you know, the, the stuff that you see with Starlink these days, Remote sensing, I spent many years in the remote sensing business, taking pictures of the earth and making sense of them for many different use cases. Those types of things are earth-focused. We're still looking back at the earth. What Arcasis is really trying to do is then say, what is the next step? We're going to create economies of scale, but space to space. So it's a space-based economy. The next phase of that is to discover what we haven't really connected the dots with by instantiating what you have access to now in space, you can do things like in situ resource utilization. You can look at providing telecommunications, not looking back at the earth, but looking out elsewhere. So those are the kind of things that we're looking to do. Um, space recycling, there's someone who might be able to put new coatings on a satellite that uh, doesn't necessarily ship like that or fixing a broken satellite. Those are things that we would be able to bring to bear. So that, that's how I look at it. This is kind of the three ways of looking at aerospace and defense and, and space businesses where you can look back at the earth for whatever reason. You can then do things in space. And then by doing things in space, what new things can you think about? And those are the untapped markets. Is this also a kind of a prelude into keeping it safe and kind of covering the unknown for space tourism? Because there's so much going on right now about, you know, for so much money or pool lotteries for the first kind of shuttle up around the moon and back for tourism and stuff. I mean, is this another way to keep to make it safer for travel or is it just more on the research side? We look at it as one rapidly getting to space. So we look to get things to space every 90 days, which is much different than before. Where I was mentioning before when we were first starting to talk, rocket launches happen ever so often. They're they're starting to become much more regular, but um, before they weren't. And they're going to get to a certain point where they're regular, they're monthly, they're every other month or whatever it is. And so we're looking to refresh resources in space every 90 days. And by doing that, instead of bringing tons of huge things to space that are single purpose built, like a space module with habitat or something like that for people to live in, we're going to put generic purpose agnostic resources up there. And we're able to assemble these structures that then we could put habitat. That's not really our focus. Someone would be paying us to put a habitat and tap into all of our power, our data, our data relay, all of those different things that people use our underlying infrastructure to lay the road to go out and expand into the solar system. 
It sounds like uh, more like uh, robotics would probably be the uh, way to go when it comes to uh, deeper space exploration, uh, since basically uh, the human element in it is put into such a danger zone. I mean, would you mm-hmm. see that? I think that, you know, basically the only reason why we're looking at humans is to go to Mars is just to say we've done it. But you guys can do the same thing that a human can do with robotics at a lot safer, you know, margin, right? Safer, faster. And I think the other thing is in novel ways, right? There's only certain things that humans can do, especially there. there's physics behind the size of a human body. There's no physical constraints about how many times we can bolt our robotic arm to another robotic arm and make that robotic arm huge for a specific purpose. And then it can come back to a different form. One thing we are looking to do, especially for mimicking resiliency in terms of form and and, and function, we we look at every resource that goes to the the port as reusable. Like it has to have some other multi-purpose. So like our robotic arm doesn't just go out and grapple something. Yeah. It can actually connect to another interface and release from another interface. So essentially crawl along the outside of the, the spaceport that we're building, creating science fiction, moving science fiction to reality. I think it would make sense because you know, there's so much talk about people wanting to be up there. And they, I mean, not comparing this to the movies, but I think the only one that I thought was the most realistic was Mars. With mm-hmm. um, Matt Damon living up there, and to build those, and, and there, the, people are up there, astronauts living up there now, doing research and trying to cultivate to see what's livable, you know, from quality of air, dirt, etc. I would think this would be ideal to build those habitats versus them trying to come back and forth from their ships to try to haul equipment and to build. You have gravity, you have so much unknown. So I would think that would be kind of if we are looking at space tourism as what's sustainable communities Absolutely. up there, this would be the best way to do it. Yep. Food production to emergency, even like if something goes sideways on some of the new human qualified as uh, space vehicles, you would you would have to have some sort of thing that provides other additional resources, whatever that might be. So absolutely, I think there's something that we can provide. I am involved. I actually sit on the board of a company that is growing on Martian regolith on Earth, but they are modeling how it's going to look like when we farm on Mars. Mm-hmm. And how best to do that is to rapidly iterate through, once they test that out on Earth, they send it to International Space Station is where we used to send it, but we have to test irradiative effects. So when we put radiation through soil and test that stuff, you can't really do that on the ISS because you'll cause human flight safety issues. There's also things like if we wanted to have huge broadband or, or or looking at certain stuff in imaging that is not necessarily for the human eye, like radar or synthetic aperture radar, stuff like that. Mm. You would fry the brains of cosmonauts or astronauts, which I was involved with the ISS for, for a long, long time. And so that, that that is what prevents innovation really from taking hold is that there's no place currently for us to try out new ideas that because of human spaceflight and how much money has been invested, there is very risk averse. So we can actually now try really awesome and inspiring stuff, but not on the ISS. Let's kind of just switch gears here a little bit. When we're talking about speed to get to, let's say, Mars or, or beyond, 
Are you guys looking at ways to propel those spacecraft up to a faster, a faster speed that would uh, take the normal trip to Mars, which was about two, maybe a year and a half to two years to about maybe a month? Is there, is there, you guys looking at something like that as well? Not necessarily looking at propulsion in a way that you would think of having a way to create additional velocity or escape velocity or whatever it might be to get off the Earth or get to Mars faster. We're, we, we may be looking at using the port as a facility to go the wrong direction. So if you go towards Venus or towards the sun, you may have a, actually a more direct path during certain times of the year and get to Mars faster. But you have to have some logistics to do that. So you forward deploy uh, those logistics to get there. And then that rendezvous with additional resources that we would be sending in that direction. So okay. pr propulsion to other types of things. And you take that whole bundle and then you get to Mars. So you think of, uh, I think one of the closest paradigms that you've probably visually seen in a movie is Interstellar, where they had the ring of a bunch of modules connected to each other. We would be building something like that, but hexagonal. Okay. It's like space GPS. You guys are you're sending them up there and they know where to go and what to look for. How far beyond, I mean, the universe have you guys actually sent some of your stuff? I'm trying to think scientifically, like the furthest planet from Earth. I'm trying to think where the planets are aligned right now. It's uh, Pluto right now. Pluto. I mean, okay. I consider Pluto, Pluto a planet. Pluto is That's or isn't a planet. <laughs> Pluto. The proto-planet. We're going to throw it in eighth grade science. It's a planet. Have you guys gone beyond that with some of your equipment? We, we have not yet with our equipment ourselves, but what we plan to do is just do that specifically. So we are going to be looking at, may or may not happen in my lifetime, but in, instantiate the possibility of exploring the asteroid belt, utilizing the, the asteroid belt. In Wait, a manner how that, far out is the asteroid belt? Ooh, uh, <laughs> the $64,000 question. One. It's far, billions of miles. But uh, if we look at using asteroids, not just utilizing that stuff for fuel or for water or whatever it is, you can actually create artificial gravity even if you're spinning around one that's large enough, an asteroid that's large enough. So those are things that we look at the port as a way of other people thinking about creatively how you build with the fundamental building blocks of what we're doing. This, mm -hmm. Just like Legos, before Legos existed, people would create stuff with Lincoln Logs or whatever. It's kind of coarse. But now... You know, you have a way to interlock these small little things um, that create whatever kids can dream of these days. So that that's what we're building is something that enables people to use the tool as a canvas more than just a purpose-built type spacecraft. What do you think? Oh, sorry, Joe. Go ahead. What well, is this question? You guys have a lot of moving parts up there. There's a lot of transports, a lot of satellites, a lot of equipment. What do you guys do with all the excess? It's kind of like space trash because you see a lot of it, it breaks off. You can't really go after it like litter like here on the planet because it's just, it's taking off. Do you just, do you worry that one of these days, one of these monster pieces of metal is just going to kind of float into the atmosphere and gravity is just going to pull it down? Or is it something that you guys track where it's going? There are a lot of people working on that problem, actually, right now. It's a space situational awareness is what we call kind of just tracking things in space. Uh, we can see things almost the size of our head, almost the size of a, a basketball, NORAD and others. 
track about the size of a basketball. Anything smaller is problematic as well. And anything that's up there, and especially that's in our low Earth orbit, that, that's traveling really fast, 25,000 miles an hour, sometimes faster. So when that small little projectile hits, say, the International Space Station, it can cause uh, really bad things to happen. And so there's, uh, you know, one of the latest occurrences was a little hole that was creating oxygen to leak out of the, the ISS. Those things are a big concern. If there is, there is another type of technology called anti-satellites technology. And so if you explode a satellite, you're going to send projectiles in all different directions. And that's really hard to deal with. It can cause catastrophic, unusable space in that orbit. So we are really concerned about that. There is a, a few nonprofits that are studying it. And then we're, we're also from the, the military side thinking about how to create you know, treaties or to participate in discussions, diplomatic discussions about how not to weaponize space to the degree in which that could happen. How far are we away from uh, mining asteroids? I mean, is that something that is, they, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that robotics would be the absolute perfect thing with that. Like what we're doing, Arcasis is a, a fundamental building block to do that. Without us and, and propulsion enough to get there or a way to extract resources to create that propulsion on site, we are fairly close to doing that. So I think within our lifetime, we'll see that happen. I think uh, to be able to bring back a giant asteroid that's laced with, I don't know, say titanium and uh, diamonds or something diamonds, like that, yeah. um, that would crash all markets on Earth for, <laughs> for bringing that back. I don't think we'll be able to do that. And if we were to be able to do that, it may not be something that we would want to do. But towing a a water-laced asteroid to Mars would actually be fairly helpful. Yeah, uh, That could actually start some that creative evolutionary processes. So, right. What are asteroids going to be made of? You said, I mean, water, titanium. I know you said diamonds in there somewhere. I mean, what are all the things that realistically? Well, it's quite a bit of stuff. Star stuff, uh, as we used to uh, quote Carl Sagan quite a bit. Um, stuff like iron. Quite iron rich, uh, you know, magnesium, all kinds of fundamental elements, um, some more rare than others. We do have quite a bit of hydrogen on on, on them. There's uh, because it's so cold, there's going to be condensate or some sort of maybe methane has frozen on them. It just depends on what that geological process or, or solar process happened to actually create that at the time that that uh, asteroid became kind of its own thing. Quite a bit of different resources. But there's a lot of sustainable properties and a lot of asteroids out there. So to harness them, to bring them into like Mars, where you could build sustainable habitat for travel, seems like you need like an asteroid ring to go wrangle them all in because there's so much out there that we don't have down here or things that we can't get up there, but you have so much going on up there. That's why I'm assuming that's just time and research and you know, trying to figure out what is sustainable and what's safe because people are saying Mars is the most viable place that they're looking at for habitats and to build. And I know, I love that you have on your Zoom for everybody, the background, you're like, of Mars. And it's so funny because it kind of looks like Arizona if you're out in the desert somewhere. It like the, it's it's a close enough approximation to what we know. And that's why it's so appealing. We, 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 we might be able to find 
extra very compelling things, say, in the atmosphere, the upper atmosphere of Venus and, and go there and then float around like in Star Wars. But it, it doesn't remind us of home. And it's not as as we get humans to go there. There's something that we, we would have a lot more trouble with than not. So we, if we look at Mars, if we, we know how to get to the moon. We know how to sustain ourselves on the moon long enough. So it's really getting to a point where we forward deploy stuff to allow us to sustain ourselves long enough to then become Martians, essentially. Not humans, the life would be a lot different, but human enough, which uh, allow us to not break our brains by being so far away from our our place that we've evolved to to thrive. Well, I mean, it's never never going to have like waterfalls, flowers. I mean, it's just, you're in a whole different, it's sustainable. Like you look at like, the movie Mars, you have the pods, but you just can't walk around like you do down here and able to breathe. It's just, have you guys covered the whole planet of what's livable and not livable yet? Or are you guys still exploring? There are a lot of surveys. I couldn't go into all of us. Uh, it, it keeps changing where people are prospecting where best to land. And there's, there's ice and there's the other types of things that we can look to maybe bore holes under the, the surface. The Martian surface itself is highly radiative. So it's, it's not some, somewhere that you want to go hang out without any protection. And if you're sitting there for a long time, you got to think about your habitat, your resource utilization and, and things like that. And what if resources don't reach Mars in time? Like maybe there's a delay or there's some event that pr- prevents resources to get there. So I, I, I do love what you're saying is that providing some sort of quasi-closed system like a biosphere or some sort of biospherics that allow us to then evolve those things where they're modular in themselves and you can bolt things, power production to waste extraction, remediation, all kinds of stuff that we should actually be doing on planet Earth. So that's what's fascinating by going to space. We learn quite a bit. Our quality of life improves incrementally and, and from the Apollo program to now, we've we've been doing that. But uh, you, you you wear Gore-Tex. You have a you know you have powdered and dehydrated foods because of our exploration efforts. But uh, yeah. So how long has um, Arcus? How long have you guys been around for? And who are the founders in, of the company? Are they all like ex NASA astronauts? I mean, the knowledge of AI robotics in space is tremendous in your company. Where is the background of all this coming from? We are born from a series of efforts that started with some programs at DARPA, so the Defense Advanced Research Agency, that is really the kind of the, the poster child of innovation within the U.S. They, they helped create some of the most fundamental shifts on our, our planet with technology. And... What they were doing, some of my counterparts were creating what we call cellular morphology. So it's taking small little things that uh, create a larger structure, almost emulating biomimicry where you have a a cell and a cell membrane. And then inside you have other things that like the smarts, the the, the, uh, internal of the cell. Things can go in and out of the cell. So that that was uh, an exercise, how to take one satellite and repurpose it for something else. And it was called Project Phoenix. And there's a a few um, additional follow-ons to that. We have some gray matter that's, you know, the professors in part of their life 
aeronautics and astrophysics and things like that to um, people like myself who have a computational biology background. And then I got sucked into consulting for DOD and the intelligence community for, for some time and then did other types of stuff. So we're, we're exactly what you would think of a multifaceted space agency, but we're a small team right now. But uh, but we are multidisciplined, and that's really required to go to space and as far as we're going to go. Is there, yeah. I don't know, a, a slowdown? I mean, it seems like it's picked up now, but it seems like since uh, the space shuttle began, it seems like there's been just a real slowdown in actual money and actual programs that we've seen. I mean, to the point where at uh, Cape Kennedy that they turned around and they shut down the space shuttle program, and I thought that was a, that was a huge disaster for us. But it just seems like, Right now, we seem to be in these salad days of space exploration when it comes to private-public partnerships. Mm-hmm. There's definitely been a, um, I would say, an inconsistent approach by the, the the U.S. government. That being said, I do believe that there is being we're witnessing a quite a, a bit of ramp up in terms of private investment. So, some of the things that, especially like what Arcasis is doing, or like rocket launches that are somewhat subsidized by the U.S. government or other governments, you see a ramp of of that because you have to instantiate markets that then have the derivative markets come to bear. So without SpaceX or other types of uh, rocket launches that are now fully commercial, you wouldn't have all of these other satellites being able to be shot up uh, with commercial financing. It would still be very government and heavy-handed government program. And that would stemmy the, the innovation cycle. What we're seeing is that's ramping up and dollars flowing into the commercial world for space at a much more rapid pace in the, I'd say the last seven or eight years. And people are now looking to creative exits as well. So there's a trend here in terms of the financing of commercial space that's uh, ramping up, but then also investors looking at the last five or seven years are now looking for exits. So you might see other companies now starting to look at really big deployments of capital or tapping the public markets to do that. So going IPO or something like that. Is there any, when it comes down to it, uh, if a private company does this, and I have no problem with that, but do some people see it as an ethical problem if the if the company does do something that isn't really, you know, there's nobody really to hold accountable if something does happen up there that oh, is yeah. very can, ethical. Yeah, there are there's export control. So there there are rules and regulations around the stuff. So uh, there's arms trade, there's arms regulations that uh, the things that are flying in space are projectiles. They're the ballistics. So we are prevented in the US especially with collaborating with people who would not hold the US in highest regard. That being said, I think if something catastrophic does happen and it's a commercial company that's responsible, there are legal recourses, but the damage is done. Just like if you have a company that's doing illegal mining or illegal deforestation or something like that, the the damage is done. And once it's done, it's very hard to undo certain types of resources. So I I would say the best way to look at space, it is a natural resource. You have to really start to think of it as a finite. It is not uh, indefinite, especially around the Earth. We've gotten to a point where we have to be really careful about how we shoot stuff up because there's so much 
junk up there. Right. And we, we can't, it's not sustainable to keep shooting stuff up and, and just forget about it. We have to be really cognizant and, and good, not only earth dwelling denizens, but space dwelling denizens. Right. And, and for that, yeah, but, I think, but who's overseeing yeah. all of that? Because, you know, we know that as long as we stay around our own earth atmosphere and orbit, there's no fly zones. You can't, there's airspace that people seem to control and own. We have, you know, all these different countries own their airspace. I'm not sure how high up they could still claim they own that airspace. Space, the universe, the galaxies, it's infinite. Nobody owns the airspace. Nobody owns a piece of the planet. And you, there are a lot more companies like, I mean, I'm surprised Bezos even doing this. I mean, there was, I mean, he's an Amazon guy. I don't have, then it's just my opinion as I, I put stock in Elon Musk and the Tesla and the engineering and the, you know, equipment and everything he's done and intelligence into SpaceX. I don't put any credibility in the Bezos when he's an Amazon guy making loans off of e-commerce shooting rocket ships up. But you have a lot of different countries and companies like that around the world that are, whatever their purpose are, whether it's fine, whether it's resource, whether it's sustainable living, whatever it is, who, there's all like space, space marshals going on up there to make sure people aren't doing things and aren't say, hey, you know what? I own that little plot of land on Mars because it's rich in soil, rich in this or that mineral. And you were there first. I mean, are you guys seeing that as starting, given the way the world is politically, that that's going to start to be an issue? Or is it, it's kind of like a, like in the wild, wild west up there right now. Right? Uh, <laughs> it is, uh, <laughs> I like the little. wild, wild west <laughs> reference. That is so perfect. It is. It's a wild, wild space. But, you know, I think uh, like space cowboys running rampant. I can just uh, have a visual there. But no, I think what you're mentioning, too, is a progressive state in which we're seeing people get involved with space. We have accords that have been drafted throughout, you know, since uh, the 60s to one, protect space and not militarize it. It is a resource for the entire planet and not necessarily one government or another. And if people are at war on the ground, doesn't mean that we have to go to battle in space. But just like people violate and countries and governments violate those rules that we are supposed to abide by, international regulations and so forth, and treaties, we do have some of the framework that prevent us from truly all-out war in space right now. That's not to say that we couldn't do that, but you know, we've we've done some really dumb things as humans. But uh, I think one of the other things that you 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 could actually you know, make the leap towards is the Artemis Accord allows for people owning resources in space, so you can claim something as a national asset on the moon or on Mars or what have you. But I, I, I do echo the sentiment where I love the terms of conditions for Starlink, where a user of Starlink has to check the box, say that Mars is its own planet, has no bearing on Earth uh, and, and vice versa. So Earthlings cannot dictate Martian affairs. That will happen. That, that will happen uh, of some form or fashion. I, I don't know exactly. I'm I've been participating in the industry for as long as I, I have been. People have mentioned and think things have mentioned how it might play out. But we really, as humans, have to be cognizant that we're not good at certain things. And well, I, I, 
create those guardrails. Yeah, I think it's because we have AI. The technology is so advanced right now. And we look at the more advanced we are in technology down here, the smarter the hackers are getting. I mean, we, you know, we were I had a I got hacked last week. Never been hacked, and we're pretty savvy because we're a PR firm, all in tech. And I mean, I know how to run the back end of mobile and dev accounts with Apple. And they had technology terms and conditions and their verbiage that I literally would never have doubted in a second. They were a hacker. And so when we talked to Apple about this, because we caught them on the firewall, they're like, it's getting bad because even though we're getting smarter and more advanced, hackers are getting smarter and more advanced to hack in. And we've had a few, we had somebody from Homeland Security, we've had ethical hackers on the show. And- it kind of makes me wonder if we're able to hack in and do the stuff we, you know, not politics aside, you know, having the votes hacked in by the Russians, whatever. The Chinese are such stupid stuff. Like you said, we're not the smartest when it comes to our human race at times. <laughs> but don't you think people up there could hack into a satellite to hear, to listen, to redo, undetected? Like it's kind of like malware on your computer. Are they smart enough to put malware into like a satellite? I mean, is that an area of concern given the technology that's being used or is that not relevant? Absolutely. And not to keep you up at night, but that has been successfully done a couple of times, especially by amateurs. That's even more unnerving to people who don't want that to happen. So, yeah, I think the more that we can have from the white hat hacking arena help, like holes and understanding of limitations of how to get data to and from space is important. I think technologies that prevent man-in-the-middle type technology uh, abuse, I think, is something that we have to, as a community, and that, that are sending stuff to space, really, really take it seriously. And we ourselves at Arcasis have invested quite a bit in cybersecurity. Things like enclaving and virtualization of our stack prevent people from actually accessing our hardware. And if Kubernetes can be put on an F-16, you should be able to put it on a spacecraft. And so we've been exploring how to containerize even our operating system all the way to software that runs some of our AI. And if we have to do a, a software upgrade, the whole thing doesn't just stop working. So we can always roll back and we have uh, ways to quarantine and sandbox specific behavior on the the, the port. It's much like if if, uh, Joe were to log into Amazon and then see Sarah going, uh, looking at all of his account, you wouldn't use that. You would would never use that service. Or if someone sends you an email, Joe, and and Sarah is able to just log right in and see your email as well, why would you use that? That that doesn't make any sense. That's currently how some satellite technology <laughs> works because it, it trusts that once you're up there, it trusts that you're the one who's supposed to be operating. So it's the same as we have down here. You have security breaches, security leaks, satellites yeah. trying to point it one way. You have all these countries that are not happy. I mean, this past political year, I'm sure that is a thought, you know, the best way to retaliate and stuff. I, and I just, I think it's astounding how intelligent the military is and the government is on some level because if we were on the ground we could point a satellite and see what street corner and who's buying a snow cone in another country and i face recognition i mean the technology that we use that people don't really 
believe or take seriously because I think it's just in the movies. It's actual technology that's being used for so many reasons out there, which is astounding to me. So this is why I love this space, but literally love the space. But and you have an amazing background to pivot off this for a second, Dan. You know, you headed up the Radiant Earth Foundation. Your your background is all technology, geospacing, machine learning. Give us your background because the Radiant Earth Foundation that's amazing that you're the co-founder and the CTO for that. And that is still being used today, correct? That, that is, it's kind of taken on more of a, a, a research and granting mechanism than, but I, I, when I started down a path, I, I, I had been involved with satellite imagery for a long time and, and telecommunications, backhaul services for, for deployed people and helping ship everything from donuts to nuclear arms and different systems and stuff. But when I started looking at the relationship of satellite imagery and what it can actually do for our understanding of our Anthropocene, like our human epoch, it becomes really clear that you can see deforestation from space. It's, it happens at quite a large scale. But then when you start saying, okay, what is the phenomenon uh, that is related to infectious disease? Well, there's actually, one, the people who are going to the frontier to do that logging go back to Caracas. And they're bringing Zika back to Caracas. There are artisanal mining where people are, you can see that stuff from the same deforestation and, and fishbone roads that once they get established, you, you can't undo those roads. They, they are, you know, where people are living. There's this, all kinds of other stuff going on there. So what happens, I think, is once you start doing it enough, you start correlating a few things that you start to see the usefulness of going to space. But there is something that is hard about that is because you can see these things from space doesn't mean that once you see that you can affect policy changes right away. That's that's also from a practitioner of remote sensing data that had been always a, a challenge in the back of my mind as someone who disrupts technology quite a bit. I, I wanted to put that decision making in the hands of all the NGOs out there that really that never really tapped that information source. Right. And so by going to space, again, we're trying to improve our quality of life, but with insights. And we, we're getting there. It's starting to become much more ubiquitous. Look at what's happening in the news right now. You have weather data that you could actually then predict where best to put your logistics for a vaccine. Same thing if you have an expression of other infectious disease out there. You can use the phenomenon of the earth to better our life with vaccines, to food production, to all kinds of other things. Dan, let me uh, have you put on your uh, little, like, foreseeing hat here. Where do you see uh, space exploration in the next 20 years? Where do you see us going? Oh, I would love to see humans in a very similar configuration of an international space station or a consortium, uh, but in the orbit of Mars. So people, oh. instead of going all the way there and then all the way back, that doesn't make much sense. You might see that in the movies, but yeah. you have to have some close by logistics and our communication will then become close to the speed of light. So we're going to have real-time communications to Mars with no delay. So when you used to see delay and all kinds of other things happen, we're going to have enough infrastructure, especially brought to you 
by Arcasis and other of the like, but we will have infrastructure that we can have a home away from home and then teach us quite a bit about being uh, resilient in an increasingly harsh planet. Unfortunately, our planet is getting much more harsh. So we have to really think about how we survive in harsh areas. That's That's interstellar all over again. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Are there any other, like, if, like to Joe's question was a great question to wrap up our podcast. Sure. Are there any other planets that you think would be habitable in like 15, 20 years from now? I think a great candidate would be a little cold for my like, but Titan is a great uh, and very compelling place. I also see Ceres as a, actually a phenomenal candidate for putting a robotic structure and rotating it and creating artificial gravity, but then you can take it other places. This is this is kind of the where science fiction starts to become attainable. And that's what uh, is exciting about the next 20 years. It's going to follow Moore's Law. So we're going to see a ramp up of uh, things that used to be seen as unattainable. But we're starting to see things that are much more attainable, especially as, as far as we need to go. Okay, that's so speaking great. of Ceres and Titan, what is your favorite show or episodic that you've binged or a movie that's the most closest replicable of where we could be in the future? Oh, oh man. Oh. Well, what not to do is uh, something like uh, Blade Runner or uh, <laughs> Children of Men. I think one thing that I really think w- we may see in our children's lifetime is contact with uh, another intelligent being. Mm-hmm. I like that. Uh, there's some really interesting stuff. And I'm on uh, the advisor of SETI. And uh, it's a, a passion of mine to help look at our own existence in a way that is agnostic of our locale. So, so what's your, fav- your favorite, favorite movie or um, binge show? Favorite movie, I'd say probably Contact. It's written oh, by okay. Carl Sagan, the book by Carl Sagan. Yeah. I say one thing that trains you as a scientist or someone who's in my space is a uh, a book by Carl Sagan called Demon Haunted World. So anyone listening to this should go out and read that book because it's pressing now. Like if you read that from when he first wrote it to now, it is something uncanny. Um, so Wait, what, what's the book it's, again? It's called The Demon Haunted World by Demon Carl Sagan. Okay. And actually... I would say that is a guiding light and guiding principles to uh, ground ourselves in our I, in our in our planetary narcissism. <laughs> I thought you would have said because you said Titan and Sirius. Okay, so you know the movie Expanse. Yeah, the TV show. TV yeah. show on Amazon. I have binged through that thing so quickly. I am so obsessed with that show. I mean, there's a few other quirky ones that I know aren't realistic. Mandalorian, Guardians of the Galaxy that I love. But I feel like Expanse is the most grounded of where we potentially could be just because you mentioned Titan Sirius and those terms and the robotics and everything you're talking about, building the pods mm-hmm. and the base stations. They're not on planets. They're sustainable, like floating around up there in space, livable communities. I feel like the Expanse is the most accurate and closest to where we could potentially be like years down the road. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen the full season on is Amazon Prime. I think yeah. it's on. Yes, Amazon yeah. Prime. I haven't seen all of them, but uh, I am a big fan. Um, I, that kind of stuff makes me uh, really love my job. I, I love that stuff. It makes me love your job. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was so good having you on here, Dan. Absolutely. Um, I learned a lot. Good. <laughs> I yes. love so did it. I, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> I, I definitely want to have you back on again. I know we have sure. a lot going on this next few weeks. I know in May, Baso goes up. There's going to be a lot of controversy around that. Uh, we're definitely going to have you back on for some commentary of what's going on. Kind of like, what Absolutely. are we looking at? But you're an expert in space. Yeah, you Thank are. Thank you guys for having me. Where, hey. So so the best place to send everybody, because we are doing our space series, is to the website, just for more information, partners and stuff. What is the website and where can they best find you guys? The best way to get a better idea of what we're doing is go to www.archisys.com, A-R-K-I-S-Y-S.com. We've got a great explainer video. We've taken some liberties from the iWatch campaign, but it is a great explainer video of what is possible and what we're building. Yeah. Web- I've been on your website a few times. It's amazing. It's awesome. great. It was so good having you here, Dan. Thank you so much for taking some time with us. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks, Joe. You're Joe, welcome. thanks for hanging out in space with us today. Yes, I loved it. <laughs> Sarah Miller, Media right. Podcast, everybody next Wednesday. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Media Mavens Podcast. If you don't want to miss an episode or download past episodes, subscribe to the Media Mavens Podcast on your favorite podcast provider, or on the Evergreen Podcast Network. To learn more about the podcast or our guests, log on to www.mediamavenspodcast.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>